Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Licton Lifestyle. I'm Steve Peck, along with Dr. Edward Licton, an expert in the field of anti-aging and wellness medicine and the author of the textbook of bioidentical hormones. We've got another great show for you today. We'll be discussing diabetes. Diabetes is a chronic condition that affects over 150 million people in the world today. The percentage of people suffering from diabetes is increasing rapidly to the point where many medical authorities are referring to it as an epidemic. On today's show, we'll learn more about this dreaded disease and we'll explore ways to prevent it if you don't have it, and we'll look into therapies that may offer help if you do. Again, if you'd like to email us, we'd love to hear from you. We've been getting some good responses. The email address is usdoctorradio at gmail.com. Again, send us your email to usdoctorradio at gmail.com. Tell your friends about the show as well. A new show is available on iTunes every single Monday. And if you'd like to have a consultation with Dr. Lichten, he'd like to hear from you. Call him at his office in Birmingham, Michigan. The phone number, 248-593-9999. Again, his phone number for a consultation is 248 248- Five nine three nine 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 nine, or reach him on the web. He's got a great website, usdoctor.com. Check him out, usdoctor.com. Doctor Lichten's official website. Doctor Lichten, how are you today? I'm good. How are you, Steve? I'm great. You know what? We've been getting some good responses from email. Now we can truly say we're global. The first email today comes from London, England. It comes from a guy named Thomas, and he writes. Doctor, I listen on iTunes, and I loved your program on testosterone. I've had a problem with alcohol abuse for over 20 years, and I've heard that hormone replacement therapy might help fight cravings. I've tried rehab many times, but I always seem to fall back into my old addiction. What is your opinion on testosterone treatment for addictions? Well, Thomas, I have a number of patients who have chronic alcoholism and other drug abuse, And I found that there are different levels of bioidentical hormones that can make a difference. The first thing is vitamin D. Now, we're going to talk about testosterone in a minute, but the first thing is you got to set the clock right. Your biological clock has to be in a situation where you can get a good night's sleep and regenerate your normal hormones. So I have all my people who have, all my patients who have alcohol and drug abuse taking high doses of liquid vitamin D. That's like four to 6,000 units at bedtime. The second chemical in your brain that affects sleep is called GABA. Now, GABA you can buy over the counter, but the better product is actually prescription, gabapentin. In the United States, this is called Neurontin. And for some reason, additional GABA or gabapentin decreases the cravings for alcohol. And the normal dose of this may be four to 800 milligrams at bedtime. So before we even talk about testosterone and the other hormones, you've got to get a good night's sleep and you have to regenerate your brain chemistry. So it's vitamin D and GABA. What about the testosterone or hormone replacement? Does that have any value at all in itself? Oh, definitely. But the thing, your body works in balance. And when one system's off, a number of other systems are off. Another, before I get to the testosterone, the other thing that's off is you use up B vitamins mm-hmm. and you lose something called glutathione. So these are things you can buy over the counter. Now, when it comes to testosterone, all alcoholics and those using drugs have very low levels of testosterone. And with the hormonal shift related to this, especially with alcohol, there's increased estrogen. 
So we get back in the same scenario we talked about last week is typically they'll have low levels of testosterone, high levels of estrogen, and high levels of sex hormone binding. Mm-hmm. So when I treat the diabetics, I have to do the nutrition as well as the testosterone. And if they stick on the program, which means they get the better sleep pattern, the better GABA, the better vitamins and minerals, and the testosterone, I have a number of patients who have stayed on the wagon, okay, have not gone off the wagon, have not reverted in alcohol for many years. And part of that is it curbs the craving for that, right? Right. You have to have energy. And one of the problems that the uh, uh, the alcoholic is having is his brain chemistry is off, and he doesn't have the energy to generate, so he ends up looking for the sugar high and looking for the the brain chemistry to try to settle down the imbalances. So again, it's a combination, but still bioidentical right down the line. And bottom line, I guess when your body is balanced and you're feeling better, cravings just wouldn't naturally happen as much if you're feeling great on your own, right? No question. It's just why men who are on the testosterone supplements when they're balanced tend to lose weight. All right. Well, there's the answer to your question, Thomas. Thanks for listening all the way in London. Now, uh, closer to home, Sarah from Baltimore writes, I heard you discuss in your testosterone show that you prescribe testosterone for some of your female patients. If I include testosterone as part of my hormone replacement therapy, will I develop masculine features such as facial hair and a deeper voice? If you use enough testosterone, yes, but everything is really balanced. So let's talk about it. I've been prescribing testosterone to women since 1972, Mm -hmm. and the point is there are drugs that are available, prescription, that are testosterone. That's the first thing. Number two, when you understand the mechanism of how testosterone works and how the body converts it, we have answers. Number one, there's a mild water pill called spirolactone. It's unique in that it blocks the conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone. Dihydrotestosterone is what causes hair and causes acne. So by giving all my women patients small doses of aldactone, we block 90% of the hair growth. Number two, small doses of thyroid are very helpful to these patients because the testosterone does slow the thyroid a little bit in, in women. So this combination I've been using for more than 25 years in that we use a little bit of testosterone, a little bit of testosterone, moderate dose, uh, usually around 50 milligrams a week, along with aldactone or spirolactone, a couple hundred milligrams a day, and 30 milligrams of, uh, of thyroid. And most of my women patients are very happy. Now, those who are trying to get into better shape or have more weight to lose might use the testosterone even twice a week. And then we have to be a little more careful about mild changes in, uh, in invoice. But a deeper voice is sexier, too. So you have to have it both ways. You can, you can pick and choose what you want. You know, I think that some women look at women bodybuilders and they think that that would happen to them. Because you've seen some of those ladies on TV and they have a low voice. Right. And I have patients who, you know, depending on the genetics, again, some people get a little lower voice. But most women don't. A moderate dose, well-controlled. The doctor knows what he's doing. They have just great results. They lose their cellulite. They're toned up. They're happy. And their husbands or boyfriends are happy. All right. There you go, Sarah. There's your answer. Thanks for writing. Again, you can write us at usdoctor at gmail.com, and Dr. Lichten will answer your questions. All right. We always like to hear Dr. Lichten's opinion on some of the items in the news, and here's a study that shows middle age is not too late to start exercising to prolong your life. In terms of lifespan, it really does matter that you start exercising, quit that couch potato habit, and give up smoking. 
But even if you don't get started until middle age or later, a new study shows you can prolong your life. Of course, it's better to quit bad habits and start good ones early, but middle age is not too late, say the researchers in Sweden. They gathered data from 2,200 men aged 50 in 1970 to 1973, all completed surveys about leisure time physical activity. The men were categorized as low, medium, or high activity types. The men were examined again at age 60, 70, 77, and 82. Changes in physical activity were recorded. Researchers also jotted down data on blood pressure, cholesterol levels, smoking status, alcohol use, and body mass index at each survey. The researchers also looked into the effect of changed physical activity between the times they were checked at age 50 and 60. At age 50, nearly half the men claimed a high level of physical activity. That is at least three hours of recreational sports or heavy gardening per week, whatever that is. 36% reported medium activity amounting to walking and cycling, and 15% were categorized as sedentary. In the long run, the mortality rates were the highest among the sedentary men and lowest among the most active. The researchers went on to say that after adjusting for the other risk factors, men who reported high levels of physical activity from age 50 on were expected to live 2.3 years longer than the sedentary individuals and 1.1 years longer than the men who had originally reported medium physical activity. So it's kind of stuff we knew, but it's never too late to start, and I think that's the important message. And some might argue, Dr. Lichten, that hey, you know, they're they're working out, they're putting all that effort in, and they're only living 2.3 years longer? Well, I, if that's a question. The point that I make it in my own personal story is that, that uh, at 42, uh, I got it was so tired without the testosterone replacement, I couldn't play five minutes of tennis. And uh, we did the bodybuilding at 50, which I haven't been back to, except when my 20-year-old drags me to the gym. But uh, uh, with the testosterone, it is as effective as if I were doing weights and exercise. I'm operating at 80 to 90% of the peak I had 10 years ago. So interestingly, exercise increases testosterone, but testosterone also increases performance and cardiovascular. So get your exercise. It's great. Get your hormone replacement. When you do them both, and the studies out of the NIH and out of John Hopkins showed, when you exercise and replace the hormones, it's even better than exercise alone. Mm -hmm. Good point. Another story, sleep deprivation linked to prediabetes. People who sleep less than six hours per night are more likely to develop impaired fasting glucose or prediabetes, as study shows. The research was presented this week at the American Heart Association's annual conference on cardiovascular disease and prevention. Participants reported how much they slept during the work week. Participants fell into three categories, short sleepers, less than six hours, mid-sleepers, six to eight hours, and long sleepers more than eight hours. During the six-year study period, participants who slept on average less than six hours a night during the work week were four times more likely than those getting six to eight hours of sleep to convert from normal blood sugar levels to impaired fasting glucose, researchers said. These findings took into account the other factors such as age, obesity, and family history of diabetes. No association was found in people who slept more than eight hours compared to those who slept six to eight hours. The study supports growing evidence of the association of inadequate sleep with adverse health issues. We talked about it earlier in this program. Right. And the thing to realize is if you go one step deeper, and the trouble with studies are 
if you don't look at all the factors, you miss something. So let's talk about sleep deprivation and testosterone. Just like women get hot flashes when they go through menopause, mm-hmm. men get the same thing. And I think one of the fellows today are going to talk about having night sweats. So if you have lack of adequate hormones, you'll get the equivalent of hot flashes that will disrupt your sleep pattern. So in this sleep study or pre-diabetic study, they should have measured testosterone levels because the cause may not be of the sleep deprivation probably was low levels of testosterone and the equivalent of a hot flash that men have or night sweats, and that probably is a cause and effect. And that's the trouble with studies. You do a study, you're looking at one level. If you look one deeper, you say, gosh, you know, you're right. This is just testosterone deficiency. Yeah, you've opened my eyes to studies over the past few broadcasts. When someone comes to visit you, one of the first things you talk to them about in the consultation is sleep. That's one of your first questions, how are you sleeping, right? Definitely, and that's one of those bioidentical hormones that we screen for. You know, we talk about the six systems. You know, do you have adequate sleep because that's related to vitamin D levels? Do you repair well? That's your growth hormone levels. Are you warm enough? Are you gaining weight? That's your thyroid levels. Are you exhausted in the middle of the afternoon? That's the adrenal levels. Are you pre-diabetic and do you have digestive issues? And then lastly is females and males, what's your real testosterone, energy, lack of depression, confusion, mental focus? That's what we look at. Six endocrine systems covers a whole host of all the illnesses we see. You mentioned GABA earlier. Would you explain that a little bit, what GABA is? Because I know that it's not primarily a sleep agent. It's been used for epilepsy, hasn't it? Exactly. In your brain, we end up having three different neurochemicals, and these are how the brain communicates. It's not always electrical. I mean, hormones are molecules that are sent into the bloodstream. So we have norepinephrine, which is from the adrenaline, from the kidneys, and adrenaline is drink 10 cups of coffee, and you know what adrenaline is. Then there's a uh, second one called uh Gabapentin, excuse me, GABA. And GABA is the one the brain produces to turn you off. So if you think of the wild bull charging you, that's low GABA. And you think of Buddha, and now you're thinking about uh, high GABA, where you have control over your basic uh, reflexes or emotions. So GABA is something your body produces in high levels, so you keep control. And it actually blocks the adrenaline. And GABA is available in an over-the-counter version. I know that they have a lot of bodybuilding products, but you use the prescription, correct? The reason is that GABA really stays on the brain side. And when you eat or drink something, it has to cross a blood-brain barrier. And GABA doesn't cross very well. So if you take GABA over-the-counter, it's 500 milligrams three times a day, while two or 300 milligrams of gabapentin, which has a different molecule to help it cross the blood-brain barrier, works even better. I have taken that, and I did enjoy a very deep sleep when I was taking it. However, after taking it for more than a few nights, I noticed that the effect, uh, the sleep effect was going away quickly. So it's not something that I felt comfortable staying on for more than a couple of nights, just sporadically. It seems like you build up a tolerance quickly. That, that's a problem with GABA and gabapentin. So what I do is I'll take it for the people who don't sleep four or five nights, and then I'll tell them using the, you can use something like a Benadryl prescription drug called Atarax, something to change it. So four or five times a week, GABA works great. Two days, find something else to help you sleep. And the other hormone in the brain that turns things off is called L-DOPA. So this is a drug they use for Parkinson, and it also has a calming effect. But the point most of us know, we go to bed, we're all wound up, we've been running on adrenaline all day long, we sit there in bed, 
thinking about all the things we didn't get done, and we just can't get to sleep. Yeah. And that's the inadequate GABA. Can't turn the brain off. Right. It's my problem. All right, a final story here talks about traffic tripling the rate of heart attack. Whether you drive, take the bus, or bicycle, being in heavy traffic triples your risk of heart attack within one hour. Air pollution from car fumes is the likely culprit. In a previous study, researchers found that about 8% of heart attacks could be attributed to being in traffic. To follow up, the researchers interviewed 1,400 people who survived heart attacks. In the hour before their heart attack, many of the survivors had been in heavy traffic. Analysis of the data showed that these heart attack vulnerable people were 3.2 times more likely to suffer a heart attack if they'd been in heavy traffic in the previous hour. One potential factor could be the exhaust and air pollution coming from other cars. But researchers couldn't exclude the synergy between stress and air pollution. That could be what's tipping the balance. But then making it less likely that stress was involved, the fact that patients didn't have to be driving. So they looked at the study and they said, well, it's not just the guys that were driving. The risk was the same whether they were driving, taking the bus, or they were driving with someone else. So I guess that story kind of goes back to the environmental issues you were talking about that we all deal with, and there's definitely some fallout from all of that stuff in the environment, whether we eat it or breathe it. I have to agree. I can look at this a couple different ways, and you know, what's the point that sets these people up for the heart attack? I mean, we've already talked about the study. We're going to talk next week about the studies that show a man who has a heart attack has a low levels of testosterone, and within a month they if he recovers, they come back up. So walking into the stress situation, what are the hormone levels? That's one thing. We know that under stress, the body, blood vessels are supposed to dilate to keep the blood flow up. Mm-hmm. Low levels of testosterone for a man, low levels of estrogen for a woman would allow them to have more vasospasm. So what's preceding this stress? You know, that's the part. You know, that's the part that's really important. What is happening underlying this report? And I don't have an answer for that one. You got me, D. This, you got me this week, Steve. And, you know, if you think about that with the heart attack, and uh, the report didn't mention geographically where the study was done, but you have to draw the line if this, if you're out in uh, California. Yeah, I mean, my goodness. There's a lot of air pollution and fumes out there, a lot more than here, or, uh, downtown area as opposed to out in the country. Well, the two-hour freeway travel in L.A. is typical. The other place would be really good to look is in Phoenix. Phoenix had a lot of pollution right downtown where you could see the haze coming into the town. So I don't have an answer, but, uh, you know, be careful. I like my one-block walk to work. I know this is now de-stressing me before I come and see all you guys. One block. Don't overdo yourself, Doc, please. You know, we need you here. (laughs) One block. Okay, well, on that healthy note, let's uh, move along to our main topic of the day. We're going to look into diabetes, and here's some statistics from the National Diabetes Center. There are 23.6 million children and adults in the United States who have diabetes. That's 7.8% of the population. The numbers break down like this. An estimated 17.9 million have been diagnosed with diabetes, but there are an estimated 5.7 million people who are unaware that they have the disease. It's nearly one quarter. The number is far too great, and we need to find out more about what we can do. So let's kick it off with uh, the basic question. Tell us a little bit, what is diabetes? 
diabetes is the inability of the body to process the sugar that is involved in what we eat. So after you've had your piece of fruit or your candy bar or cookies or whatever else you've eaten, your blood sugar goes up as this sugar enters the bloodstream. In normal circumstances, your body can very quickly process it, move it from the bloodstream through the cell wall, and store it as glycogen. We'll call it white fat. And you need this kind of glycogen storage for energy because we don't feed ourselves 24 hours a day. What we do is we eat and uh, two or three times a day, and then we run on the stored energy, pulling it, just like gas from a car, pulling it as you need it. The problem with diabetes is we're unable to get the glucose or sugar from the bloodstream into storage. And this high level of sugar, just like if you kept sugar in your gas tank, irritates the cell wall, uh, ends up clogging the cell wall, and this produces a physical problem. High sugar is bad for you, whether it causes damage to blood vessels or glaucoma, interferes with small vessel circulation causes kidney disease, causes skin ulcers. Diabetes is the number one killer. Not only the 17 million that you mentioned or the 6 million who have diabetes and don't know it, three times as many have prediabetes and will develop diabetes in the next 10 years. What is prediabetes? That means they're going to get diabetes within a short period of time. They're already showing changes in the normal processing of sugar. So in the United States where we had 1 million diabetics in 1950, we now have about 20 million today. In the world, there were 35 million diabetics around 1950. Expectation is by the year 2030, we will have 350 million diabetics worldwide. So what is that growth attributed to? Well, people say it's the United States exporting McDonald's and other junk food. But there's something more involved here. We're finding worldwide that there is a decreased level of testosterone. And you and I, are, we're going to talk today about how testosterone reduces the incidence of diabetes. But other than the environmental toxins, what's causing a lot of this is we're putting estrogen in our food source. We've got DDT-like sprays on our vegetables. And we're eating foods out of plastic. And all these are called estrogens, synthetic estrogens, or xenoestrogens. And estrogens are just not good for guys. We're not supposed to have estrogen in our body. We're not supposed to have it in our food. And estrogen interferes with our normal testosterone male function. Well, I'm getting a little confused because, you know, here one minute we're talking about sugar, and now we're about estrogen. Well, think about it this way. When you go ahead, if you take a diabetic, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, Mm -hmm. and they exercise, they can get their cell wall to open up and process the sugar better. So in diabetes, one thing we tell you is keep the exercise level up. Because what happens here is we've got two different issues that no one's connected before my research. It says diabetes and testosterone levels are really part of the same disease. What happens is being diabetic, we're just talking about men for the time being, being diabetic is the inability to process the blood sugar, and that causes all kind of damage. If you can process the blood sugar, And this has been known for hundreds of years. If you go out there and exercise hard and you can keep the exercise level up, your body will open up and process the blood sugar. So exercise and diabetes has been known. What we're adding is that what exercise does is raise testosterone levels. So you said if you can process it. So uh, I'm understanding that to mean that 
just some people can and some people can't, just naturally. Right. What happens is in we're putting a lot of information out, so I hope we don't lose everybody here. But basically, 25% of the population can live on junk food and never get diabetic. 25% of the population can work very hard and still become diabetic. And 50% of the population can go either way. If you eat enough junk food, you become diabetic. So this epidemic of obesity is affecting this group of 50% of the population. And the more fat you get, the more chance you have for diabetes. So the food we're eating, the estrogens and the high-starch, high-fat diets, are making people fatter. Obesity shifts that middle group into the pre-diabetic or diabetic phase. The numbers of people who are genetically uh, unblessed, I guess, with a family history of diabetes is increasing because we're able to save people who are diabetic and they're able to reproduce. So we're finding that from the population, more diabetic individuals are having more diabetic children, and those who don't have to get diabetic are being induced to become diabetic by the nutritional problems. So we have three levels of problems, more genetic diabetes, more environmental food diabetes, and then we have the hormonal issues that are causing diabetes. So the increase in diabetes over the next 30 years in the United States is expected to reach 75%. Wow. Unbelievable. So the, the cause then is not just one thing? It's not just sugar to you or the inability to process that? That's an effect because genetically, diabetics live longer, so there's more diabetics having more diabetic children. Two, it's environmental. We're eating more sugar and we're eating more processed food. And third is all these estrogens in our food, livestock, in our sprays, on our plants, and the plastics are lowering testosterone. So we're having a three-prong effect that's, cre- that's creating not an epidemic but a worldwide pandemic of disease. So uh, to some regard, you can't get away from it at least from the environmental aspects. But then if you you have it, it's a hereditary disease as well. So uh, if you're predisposed to that, then all of the other additional environmental factors are making things even worse for you, correct? Definitely. Everyone should be starting from the time the woman's pregnant and recognizing that eating the right food, which is more fish and clean protein that hasn't been estrogen-stimulated, uh, Clean protein, clean vegetables, green vegetables, spinach, seaweed are great for cleansing. Uh, Basically, an Okinawa-type diet would be the best thing for everybody, whether you're diabetic or not diabetic, because if you live long enough, you'll you'll become diabetic. Really? I mean, even if you're taking care of yourself and eating the right diet? Well, you're going to lose, as you get older, the inability to process quickly. It's like how fast can you run your 100-yard dash? some point in time, you're not going to be able to run fast enough. So if we look at 80-year-olds, mm-hmm. we'll find that they have insulin resistance or prediabetes almost routinely throughout the population. So it's just like heart attacks. If you live long enough, you're probably going to get one, but you can do a whole lot to make prevent it. Eat right, get exercise, and keep your bioidentical hormones balanced. We'll talk more about that in just a bit, but let's discuss type 1 versus type 2. I always hear type 1 or type 2. I'm not sure which is which, so why don't you educate us on that? If you are, the rationale is that there is a virus that hits children, and type 1 diabetes means you got a child that's 
living normal, everything's going along, and suddenly out of the blue this individual needs insulin or they'll die. It's just like someone destroyed their whole pancreas. And when they do studies on these individuals with type 1 diabetes and they do biopsies of the pancreas, these cells, these islet cells that produce the insulin, look like they all just got wiped out. You know, Think of it as an islet cell genocide. Something came in and killed all the insulin-making cells. So this is why a two-year-old, like, the, like uh, you know, we talked about Craig before, at two years of age, suddenly his blood sugars are off the wall. He's spilling urine that's loaded with sugar, and they don't know why. This is type 1 diabetes, infection, destruction of the pancreas. Now, if adult, and now we have adult children, so let's just say an adult goes ahead, and, and whether they're genetically uh, predisposed or they've been eating the wrong food or they're massively obese, they slowly, gradually go into a state where they need some support to produce enough insulin to handle their sugar. This is type 2. So if I measure the insulin level in a type 1 diabetic, the levels are zero. If I measure yours or mine, at fasting, the levels could be 2 to 10. This insulin, this non-insulin requiring type 2 diabetic may put, be putting out 200 units of insulin at rest. So the body has got this built-up resistance. Think of it as the filters being clogged. The cell wall can't process the sugar through it fast enough. So what is happening, the body is trying to compensate by producing more and more insulin and gets to the point where it can't keep up. So type 2 diabetic says, you've overwhelmed my system. I can't make enough insulin to deal with the situation. So type 1 is insulin-requiring children. Type 2, which is adult-onset diabetes, means take some oral agents or maybe even need some insulin to help your natural body's levels until they also burn out. And a late type 2 diabetic has an insulin level of zero. When you get enough destruction with type 2 diabetes, they're requiring insulin. But type 2 is probably more manageable of the two, correct? 90% of all diabetes now is type 2. Really? And if not, more. And the point that we make is that the type 2 is nutritional. Uh, you find this in societies that have less exercise and have more high-calorie foods. So right now we're finding epidemics of this in third-world countries. Africa, China, and India now have between them uh, 200 million diabetics. So the type 1, they get diagnosed earlier in life? Definitely. If you diagnose, they have to be diagnosed early in life or they die. I mean, you can't live without insulin. Um, it's just a, a matter of fact. So as you get older, maybe you haven't experienced it before. How do you know that you're beginning to get type 2 or diabetes? What are some of the symptoms and signs, and how would you get tested for it? Well, interestingly, many of the men that walk in my office don't know they're diabetic. They notice they're getting chunky. Yeah. They have less performance. Uh, they can't work out in the gym. Uh, they may or may not have sexual diabetes. Uh, uh, erection dysfunction, but bottom line, they just don't feel right. And part of the screening I do is to screen for what's called a hemoglobin A1C. This is a three-month sugar average. And the number six is what we consider normal. So if you walk in my office, you say you're not feeling right, I do your blood levels, and you have a 6.5 or a 12.5, it shows that your blood sugar has been running up all along and you just didn't know it. So type 2 diabetes can sneak up on you. And if you're overweight, by 30 or 40 pounds, you should be checked. And I've heard some, uh, maybe more women than men say this, but 
uh, they'll say they're just getting shaky. They think it's because they haven't eaten and uh, the shakiness. They go, oh, maybe I'm getting diabetes. Does, is that a symptom? You actually make a very good point. So think of it like railroad tracks or just for a second. Your blood sugar goes up because you've eaten something. If your body is responding properly, your insulin should follow that up. So the two should go together. Now, what happens as you become diabetic, your body response is screwed up and it's slowed. So what happens is you give an overshoot. So the blood sugar goes up to a peak and the insulin peak will come later. Excuse me. And what happens is the overshoot of the insulin causes them to get shaky after they eat two hours later. And that is a sign of prediabetes, where the insulin response is not being matched, is not matching the, sh- the sugar response. So diabetics have to uh, watch their food intake? Definitely. The foods that are bad for diabetics are going to be those that are processed as sugar. So sugar, processed carbohydrates like Cheerios will actually raise the blood sugar faster than taking sugar itself. Even white bread or pasta, right? White bread, pasta. Processed foods are sugary, sugary drinks, uh, cookies. I mean, we know the whole uh, hamburgers, the buns, everything here is loaded with sugar. Ketchup is almost first ingredient is sugar. So you have to understand that the foods that are good for you are natural foods. And like I said, fish, free-range poultry, uh, and then green vegetables are fantastic. Uh, some of the starchy ones, like a potato, uh, mixed reviews, sweet potato, definitely. But I bet as a physician, you run into a lot of non-compliant patients. It's like with heart disease and cholesterol. You know, they rather take the statin and not eat right. Uh, does that happen with diabetes as well? People just don't want to stay with the diet because you know what? Some of what you just said doesn't appeal to a lot of people. Right, and I think you'll hear from the fellows, and they'll tell you when, when they tried it and they went off it. They went back on it when they felt it was a matter of life and death. But until you get pushed to the edge, most people, and that probably includes, I know it includes me, it may include you too, is, uh, hey, you know, I had a couple of cookies on my way to work, and uh, yeah, but I did better. I had my, had my, you know, I had some fish and cottage cheese this morning, so I got some protein. So I make sure you mix protein with carbs. That slows down the absorption of carbohydrates. So the Atkin diet was a brilliant maneuver where he said, Add something to the carbohydrates. You don't have cookies alone, okay? Mm-hmm. If you're going to have applesauce, you have it with a piece of chicken. If you're going to have a piece of bread, you know, uh, put it in olive oil. The point is there are natural things we've done for thousands of years which mix the food groups to slow the absorption of carbohydrates. What about the future for diabetes as far as treatments? What about stem cells? Are they doing anything with that? Yes, the point is there's something I call much ado about nothing. Uh, stem cells is a great idea, but doesn't work. They've already done stem cell studies in animals, and where our literature and research is now, they can replace about 6% of the uh, pancreas. And the point is 6% is not enough to take someone's insulin requirements down, and they've tried doing a pancreas transplant. And the problem with that is now they're on high dose of steroids, which makes you diabetic worse. So mm-hmm. the point is some of the things that we're going to talk about today are light years ahead of what the researchers are doing because we're understanding the physiology of what causes the disease, not trying to catch up. We're not trying to catch, catch the horse once it's out of the barn. We're going to try to t- treat it right when we have control of it. Mm-hmm. And by balancing the hormones, we can make a bigger difference than a stem cell transplant will for the next 20 years. Well, before we get into all of that, uh, one final question. What about the pharmaceutical companies? What are they doing for this? 
The problem is that the drugs that they're making are toxic and becoming more and more toxic. If you read the uh, Wall Street Journal, the drug companies are just about out of business because there's no new drugs they can make uh, off the old drugs because they're just too toxic. The newest line of, of diabetic drugs, including Resolin, which is taking off the market. These are called uh, uh, trizolazones. Uh, they were taken off the market because they cause increased number of liver deaths and, and heart attacks. The drug that still is on the market, Avandia, is on and off the market. Uh, the FDA tried to pull it, and some politics were involved. Avandia is still on the market. Actos is the next one that will, in the next two or three years, will probably be eliminated as well. The newest drugs, including Genuvia, are very minor drugs compared to the potent insulins and the other oral agents. Uh, the point we're making is that the best way of treating diabetes is don't get it. And let's find out more about that. We've got a couple of guests in studio. Dr. Licton, I'd like you to introduce your guest, and these are your patients, and I guess they're receiving some good results. So introduce your guest for us. Okay, we have John and Hollywood Joe. Uh, John's been a patient of mine for how many, four years? Yeah, it's going on. It's over three now. Okay, and Joe dates back till 96, I think. 96, so that's uh, we're 14 years. And uh, both these gentlemen will tell you about their diabetes, how they were diagnosed. I don't believe either one knew it walking in the door. And I think the easiest way is to just let them tell their story of what they knew beforehand, uh, what we did in evaluation, uh, when they followed the regimen, how they did, when they didn't follow the regimen, how they did, and where they are today. All right. Who do you want to start with? Oh, let's pick John right over here Okay, John, tell us your story. Well... Uh, my family history is uh, my grandmother was diabetic on my father's side. Both my father and his brother were diabetic. Uh, the brother uh, ended up finding himself comatose under the bed a lot. He'd thrash through the night. Uh, my older brother today is diabetic. I think my younger brother is, but he doesn't see a doctor very well. And and I knew uh, since my father had become diabetic back in the late 60s that that was probably going to be my future. And I had uh, done a number of things over the years to try and slow that process down. And for almost 10 years, I could see the pre, pre-diabetic issue coming on. What were you doing to slow it down? I did a number of things. Uh, one was diet and exercise. I've, I've always exercised. I've always uh, kind of stayed to the green side of food. But yeah, that's not too easy when you're on a road a lot. Uh, what would happen is that as I uh, got closer to that process or the age where it appeared that my father was going to be there, and I think I avoided it for close to 10 years longer than he did, uh, it would show up. I could fast in the day. I could have a normal sugar level. But if you tested me in any given day on a regular basis, it would show that I was running uh, 140 or higher on a on a meter. Did you feel bad? Well, you don't recognize it as such. Really? When uh, I had to have some heart surgery, I had to have different kinds of things over the years, as my Wife tells me I've been in and out of hospital every other year for something. But was this uh, at all that from diabetes or well, were the complications the, from that crossed over? Well, I, I, I think that's kind of what 
started to become obvious. The the uh, I had seven stents in my heart, not a heart attack. Uh, uh, my health or my exercise kept me alive, uh, and that was very fortunate. But I had completely blocked the anterior descending artery. Wow. How old are you? Uh, I am now 63. Okay. This you look was, good. Yeah, well, I, I'm a lot healthier since I've met Dr. Lichten, without a doubt. Joe, what's your story? I was in pretty good shape up until probably 35, um, 170, 175 pounds. Started gaining weight slowly. My mom was a late diagnosed diabetic. Uh, 60s, late 60s, maybe she got diagnosed. So I started gaining weight, a lot of weight. Right before I went and see Dr. Lichten, I probably went to 10 doctors in two years. So at this point, you didn't know you had diabetes? No. One of the doctors tried to give me prescriptions. But at that time, I was like, well, they gave me diets first of like high uh, carb diets. How old were you at the time? At that time, I was 40. Okay. And uh, really, really bad shape, Um, 270 pounds. He gave me that. I went from... You know, 270 to almost 300 pounds. Then he wanted to give me a script for They did blood work. Wanted to give me a script for some diabetic medicine with the fact that he said that I was probably getting weight. So I think I threw it in his garbage before I even left his office. And my wife was starting to, I think, we were starting to have little problems because when I got up in the morning, all I felt like, I can't wait to get home and go sleep. I mean, I was just, so then I went to see Dr. Licht. All right, and what happened? And I might get a little emotional here because I didn't think I would really live five years because I was in such bad shape. Really? And when you came to see Dr. Lick and you were yes, that bad? Yes. And my wife will tell you. And so tell me about that first visit. Uh, we sat down in his office. We didn't go in the exam room like right then. And he told me um, probably that I wasn't, I was in real bad shape. And he took blood work. Um, Told me he had to. I had to change my diet right then. He says you need to. Uh, eggs is fine. Some oatmeal. Uh, stay away from the carbs. Stay away from sugar. And I went home and I told my wife. I says you know, I think this is gonna make the difference. You recognized right away, Doctor Lichten, based on what that he was in trouble. Well, Joe was two hundred ninety-five pounds, five eight. Five seven, five eight, five eleven, almost five ten. All right, fine. <laughs> well, we're all getting shorter. Tell the truth in this. Where this is truth time. Anyway, the bottom line is, uh, Joe said I can't walk up a flight of stairs, and I, my daughter's fourteen at the time, and he says I don't think I'll make graduation for her. And uh, uh, my line to him when we did the blood tests, and basically we're screening to see where we were, and his hemoglobin A one C normally was six. I think you're maybe an eight and a half at that time. And I said, look, you know, you're diabetic. And not only did we do the one measurement, we did a second test called a three-hour glucose test. Remember I talked about how the blood sugars goes up and then the insulin's supposed to follow it? Well, we ran this test, and it showed that he was still an early diabetic. He was producing insulin, but his blood sugars were hitting 300. Normal high is 150. And then at the same time, because uh, actually Joe was the third male I treated, I was looking at testosterone levels. So I measured his testosterone, I said, well... I know your testosterone levels are low. And uh, this is my favorite line here is I said, I know nothing about diabetes, but I do know a little bit about testosterone replacement. So let's replace your testosterone, see what happens. And then the rest of that is uh, uh, a miracle I tell all the diabetics. So we'll let Joe tell you the rest of the story. All right, so continue. So after the blood work, start on uh, testosterone. First thing I noticed was, you know, I never ever thought of depression at all because I, 
but I didn't feel good. And I, I'd say within days, I mean, I felt good, like different. And then within, I started. Mood? I mean, your mood oh, was Oh, God, yes. Yes, completely. And my energy level started coming up a little bit. And Did then, your wife notice? Yes. That's a good thing, right? <laughs> and then. She, uh, noticed, she noticed. She noticed. Okay. I think the first month. She's talking about the mood, doctor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it, it, she it, noticed it, a lot, yeah. yeah, it, 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 yeah this was getting in but, the mood. Okay, guy? Uh, but uh, within the first month, I lost like 20 pounds. And that was before I really got into the diet the way I should have. I mean, the more I noticed, the more I started really following what he said. But did you grasp the magnitude of what was going on with you, that this was a really serious, potentially serious situation? Oh, I knew that. Yeah, I, I knew. It was, it was. I mean, the diabetes, I didn't because, to me, it didn't matter because I didn't think I was going to live that long, like I said. you know. So. Did you feel the same way, John, when you were yeah, going yeah. through situations from a mental state and things well, like I, that? Well, I've had a commercial license for 33 years as a pilot. Uh, and owned my own plane. So for me, the priority was keeping the plane, not dealing with diabetes. And, and, and that crossover came from Dr. Licton. In a similar therapy for you as well? In, a, in essence, I knew from years ago that I didn't have the same level of testosterone as some of my friends. That's for certain. And, and, but I never had any impact as to what that meant. Uh, I had been dealing with another doctor, and, and I had night sweats. I had a lot of things going on, and, and the diagnosis of what was causing this had, as it's turned out, nothing to do. And had I gone to Dr. Licton earlier, I probably wouldn't have had the stents either. I mean, there's a lot of things that have, have changed in the last three years. Uh, for me, I came because I had heard uh, Dr. Lichten had uh, with testosterone would impact diabetes, and I thought I could just get rid of it. You can't get rid of it exactly if, if it's, it's part of your heredity. But coming to realize how that lifestyle change really is, uh, today I have muscle tone, I have energy, I, I just live a better life. So, Dr. Lichten, you said that when these guys came to you, you really hadn't had a lot of experience treating diabetes before. No, actually, the whole path, and, I, and when we talk, as we go further along, I have the storyline is that yeah, my favorite line when I say, I don't know anything about it, but I'll treat you and see what happens. It's like the lightning bolt from Thor hits me right in the chest. And I, whenever I make that statement, I go, oh, my God, here we go again. <laughs> but Joe actually is the one who started this whole treatment because Joe's response which is so unbelievable as we go further in the story, made me ask the question, why are we seeing this? And uh, what happened was I don't accept this as a, a, a one case in a million. I look at this as a pattern. So I went back in the literature and found that back in 1918, at the end of World War One, there's a report of uh, the, a soldier's dead testes being removed and put into a diabetic who had a gangrene and the diabetic person recovered. 1918. At the end of World War II, testosterone was invented around 1940 and was invented in Germany and Europe. So we didn't have it until after the Second World War. But one of the general practitioners in Denmark started giving testosterone to diabetic men and women. And his reports, he even reports curing gangrene again. And this evidence was out there. 
It was out there to the 80s, and then something nasty happened in Europe where the drug companies put the little guy out of business. But the bottom line, this has been done for now over 50 years. And here I just stumbled on to a fact that testosterone has something to do with diabetes. And after Joe had such good response, I turned to my patients and said, bring me your worst cases. So I had three patients bring in parents who had diabetic gangrene and were scheduled for foot amputation. And I treated those three. And the results were so dramatic in the way the blood levels changed. So I went to the head of endocrinology at Wayne State, who was a friend of mine, and said, Jim, what do you think about this? He said, interesting. What do you want to do? I said, I want to do a study. And that led to the study we did at the end of the 1990s where the data was so dramatic and so overwhelming that the hospital killed the study. So dramatic and overwhelming that the hospital killed the study? But let's save that for another story <laughs> later on. This is, this is these guys' story today. Well, continue your story, Joe. So you're, you're now taking testosterone, or you started taking testosterone, and you said things started to change quickly. I mean, it's like uh, it changed my life. I mean, it was so dramatic uh, how I felt. Uh, I started losing weight, like probably 20 pounds the first month without trying. And then I seen that, and I figured, man, if I really stick to this diet, you know, so uh, I did. I lost, I think, another 20, 25 pounds the next month. And what was going on with his numbers when you looked at his blood work after he went on? Well, basically, on the testosterone, his blood sugars, that may have been the 180s to 200s in an office when he come in here randomly, were now down in the 110s or 120s. So we had a dramatic improvement in his blood sugar right off the bat. And as time goes on, I found that testosterone would do it even before the weight loss. But what Joe did, and he's still the best example, is he said, look, I can follow the diet and I can have my life back. And then I'll tell you about exercising, which I still, still tell the story about his, his progression after the first month. He started walking, uh, following the diet. And then go ahead, you tell the rest. First, the exercise, I mean, I didn't exercise in years. And then, I mean, I... I had to get in a little bit of shape before I could even exercise. So I start walking. Me and my wife start walking at the park. Probably a quarter mile, half mile the first bit. Then we walk, got up to like three miles. And then I joined a gym and um, start doing the stair stepper. First time, probably 10 minutes. And I got up, so I could spend 45 minutes on it, which like freaked everybody out. Uh, freaked myself. I never thought it would happen. Um, from not being able to go up the flight of stairs right, without being, like, exhausted to, um, man, now I felt just like I had a whole new life. I mean, not got my life back. I had a new one. Oh. I mean, it was, it was it changed my life. I, I, I tell everybody that. It's just, I can't believe it. It's just um, amazing. So when we're monitoring his blood work, his hemoglobin A1C, that three-month average, is like 8.5 and normal 6. And he drops down to, like, 7.5 in the first six weeks, which is unbelievable. And then he starts his exercise program, and he drops a total of 85 pounds in the first year. He goes from 295 down. He actually, went, I think, went to as low as 205. You're around 215 now. Yep. And uh, now he's telling me that uh, it's a year into it, and his hemoglobin A1C is down to 6, which is normal. Or 6.2, it's very close to normal. But Joe doesn't quit. He keeps exercising. So he comes back and tells me a year and a half that he's running on the treadmill for an hour and a half. 
the guy who couldn't go up a flight of stairs. I mean, when this guy decides, you know, if he decided to be president, I would vote for him because he's going to do it. And I said, let's go back and repeat that first test, the one where you drink the sugar water called a glucose tolerance mm-hmm. test, and let's see what your sugar and insulin levels are now. Because when you drank it before, the sugar would go up to three, 400 at two hours, and his insulin levels were over 100. Normal insulin levels are no nowhere higher than 40. A year and a half when he's running on the treadmill for an hour and a half, clinically he's not diabetic. His glucose tolerance test is the same as you or I. His insulin levels have dropped by 80%. And if I show that pattern, no one, no endocrinologist believed, but actually in Joe's case, he, with a little help from the testosterone, reversed the disease. And John, similar uh, number changes Very for similar. you. There, there were peaks for me between two and three hundred. And uh, what's what's happened is is the first year I'm I'm working with the doctor. I'm I'm seeing an average of one sixty, and I think one twenty is good because look how far I get down. And he said it's not good enough. Today I I run far more in the seventy to hundred range than I ever thought possible. And and my average over the last ninety days is about one fifteen. So the the difference in 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 the reading on a sugar blood sugar is a much different thing. And for me, it's instantly recognizable where I'm at because I have eyesight, and since I can read both and near and far from the the RK and LASIK. I can, if I can see on my left eye, I can tell you where my sugar level is based on the acuity of my left eye versus my right eye. And, it, and it's amazing. I mean, when I'm in a proper range of sugar, uh, reading and seeing is, is perfect. And uh, since the aviation community now allows me to be diabetic, that, that has given me another window in the United States that's allowed as long as you run within a range. Well, I've always been in the range because it goes all the way up to 9 uh, on a, a A1C or H, is that you, it? A1C. Right. Yeah. But the, and I get up to 8, 7, 8, 9, somewhere like that, and I think the last reading is below 6, which is fabulous to me. I, I, I'm just excited. You can't imagine the difference here is that in reference to Joe's story, Joe was an early diabetic, even though it was close to 300 pounds, so he never needed to get to insulin. He would have. Mm-hmm. He, he was going to burn out his pancreas because of all the demands on his system. By losing the weight and using the testosterone to reduce the resistance, uh, his hemoglobin A1C now runs at 5.2. So he's in better shape than you and I, just to let you know. He's so good he's in better shape than you and I. Okay, so that's Joe's story. Now, in John's story, uh, John had already burned out his pancreas. When we checked him on that three-hour glucose test, he was not producing insulin. And part of the problem with John is he didn't want to go on insulin. I'll tell you a story. I'm not afraid of you. I'm the one that supplies you with testosterone, so I know you'll listen. But the bottom line is he realized, and he fought with me for a year at least, that he wasn't going on insulin. And his blood sugars, even with testosterone, he got up to 8.5. And and I told him that was unacceptable. And I said I wasn't going to continue unless you followed instructions. So he got the message, and he... We, we started him on insulin, and the combination of insulin with testosterone is better than insulin alone because he had no insulin, and he was— And a, no testosterone for that. And moment. no testosterone. And this preceded his heart disease. This is what I'm talking about prediabetes. When a man gets 
heart disease, he's diabetic, at least pre-diabetic in every case. So his coronary artery disease was a symptom of his pre-diabetic state. The point is, on insulin, really? Yeah. yeah. That amazes me. You're, You're saying that everyone with heart disease has some form of diabetes going on. Yeah. So here's how it works. We now have gotten very sophisticated. And we now call all this sugar overload as metabolic syndrome, syndrome X, described by Reven, a guy out of Stanford in the 1980s, and everyone blew him off. But he says, look at the data. There are five diseases that are linked at the hip. Diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and obesity. In every one of these cases, if you run the glucose tolerance test we talk about, they'll be abnormal. So therefore, all five diseases have one cause. And what I'm saying is that cause, that pre-diabetic cause, is low testosterone. You say, well, Ed, you know, what's the proof? Well, Phillips out of New York says, quote, every man with heart disease has low testosterone. When a man has a heart attack, his testosterone levels have hit the toilet. Every guy who's fed is estrogenized. Hypertension is another form of this. So what we're saying is in our environment, we're creating metabolic syndrome. We're creating disease because we're loading the environment with estrogen. The guys aren't producing enough testosterone, and that's why their whole bodies are falling apart. But there seems to be such an easy patch for some of this. I mean, guys, you were going going through some big problems, potentially life-threatening problems. How do you feel now after probably going to see some other doctors before and not getting results, and you were still headed down this negative path, and now your numbers, as Dr. Lickman says, can be better than ours. So in effect, for the time being, you're not in a state of diabetes. How does that make you feel that you can't get that information? Well, you know, it's always a follow follow the money. There's no money in your being well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is, I, 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 I had the opportunity to be with the uh, leading herbologist in China, the one who teaches mm-hmm. at the University of Peking. Her sister lives here, and she came here and didn't speak a word of English. Uh, this person solved many things in the family group because she was totally bored after three months and wanted people. So we all brought our family members in, and she described us all to a T by feeling our pulse on each side with three fingers, looking at our tongue and feeling our hair. And it makes you very aware that the the difference in our medicines is MDs are taught basically by the drug companies, and there is less and less true medicine being taught. And it's 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 a disturbing thing, and it's just a, like any commercial enterprise. It it tends to run amok, as we're seeing in our society. Well, John, we talked about that in a past show. How it's kind of this vicious cycle, and and so you bring up the the money issue, and it's just so sad to me. It's so sad that so many patients have an opportunity to experience wellness, but they don't take that path. And John, Doctor Lichten said you fought him for a year. What were you fighting about? Well, remember, I, 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 I've learned a lot of things, and, and part of it was if I figured if I was diabetic, I'd have to give up my license, and I'm sitting with an airplane in a hangar. So I have these cross-purposes, uh, as I've learned that I, I ne- neither have to give up my airplane nor do I have to give up my life. 
when you have seven stints put in your heart as an alternative to that number of bypasses, I got my brother to go to a doctor for a stress test and understand I passed the stress test. I could always pass the stress test and still had my arteries closed. My brother had seven bypasses, and he is diabetic and was diabetic sooner than I was. Today, even under his doctor's care, he can't bring his average sugar down below 170. And, I, and, and he's way lighter than me and, and eats salads, and I don't know what it is, but whatever he's doing in procedure is wrong, whereas the doctor has me checking my sugar by every meal, adjusting it at every meal, and as a consequence, it's leveled out over the last year and a half, and, and I've become wiser in the process. Uh, but there was motivation that was a false motivation for me. And uh, the other is, you know, you don't believe it. You don't believe it. But, I mean, your brother's watched all the positive things that have happened to you. you know, Why isn't he running to, to get the same positive results? I'm in the finance business today. How many guys made money last year? Mm-hmm. And why are they still with Would you pay a broker $100,000 to manage your money to a negative number? That's what everybody did, at least. I mean, they, they, it's it's hard to change. Change is really the, the most difficult process. And, mm. and if you don't change in your mind, then you have to, one, trust the doctor. And I've always believed it's medical practice. It's not medical expertise. And so, you know, I have to believe what I see, and, and maybe I get into it too far, uh, but everybody has their own approach to how they solve problems. In this one, I knew it was coming. I wanted to hold it off. And I, I think it was one day he said, look, you're diabetic. Don't kid yourself. So just face it, the reality yeah. of the situation. Now deal with it. Yeah, and what I've learned is the night sweats went away too, both both with the testosterone and and the sugar once the 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 general level of of uh the sugar was labeled i i with another doctor who said i have some uh low grade infection i mean this is a holistic doctor in all this md uh it it wasn't a low grade infection it was really a night sweat and 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 between the testosterone and the, the proper insulin levels you know, I don't soak a towel twice a night and change T-shirts three times. So is that maybe a little male menopause going mm-hmm. on as well? Do you think that's it, Doc? Oh, no question. Same thing I had when I was in my 40s. The point I wanted to add to John here is is there were another concern is, is uh, forget the doctors say you don't want to be on testosterone. We'll leave that one as a story we've told a couple times before. But the other thing is if I have to go on insulin, I'm afraid my blood sugar is going to drop too low and I'll die. Um, the problem with uh, regular management of insulin, or we'll call it standard of care, is that there have been studies published that if you get the blood, try to push the blood sugars into too tight control, try to get the hemoglobin A1C under 8. A very good study published in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine showed that increased morbidity because some of them would drop too low and they would have problems. And what I've been trying to sell the endocrinologists unsuccessfully at this point in time is 
testosterone does something that no other drug does. It keeps these individuals from crashing. Just like the testosterone opens up the cell wall to let the sugar in for storage, dropping the blood levels, there's a pathway in the body using a second mechanism called glucagon, which takes the stored glycogen, the stored fat, we'll call it, and turns it back into sugar. So diabetic not only has a problem taking sugar in, it also has trouble getting glycogen out. And what we found is that even the most brittle diabetics, the men using over 100 units of insulin, they would walk in my office with a blood sugar of 37 without symptoms, which is unbelievable. So what you can do on testosterone you can't do with anything else is you can push the control. If, you, if an endocrinologist is listening to our conversation and says, here you've got an insulin-dependent diabetic who's using 40, 50 units a day. That's about right. 40 or 50 units of insulin a day, and his blood sugar is 70, the endocrinologist is in his pants. Blank, 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 in his pants. Okay, you got that? All right. Anyway, so the bottom line is he says, this guy's going to get in trouble. But John doesn't get in trouble because the testosterone protects him against the too low blood sugar. And that's what we're adding above everything else. Yes, there's insulin resistance we can reduce. Yes, the amount of insulin you need, we can drop in half. Yes, you don't need to take the oral agents. But the biggest part is these guys don't crash. So they can get control. And the better control means less morbidity. Because if a hemoglobin A1C now at 6 or less, we've reduced his complication rate by 75% to where he was when we walked in the door. His chance of a heart attack, chance of blindness, chance of kidneys shutting down. By going from an 8.5 down to a 6, we've reduced his complication rate over the next 20 years by 75%. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that is amazing. It's amazing that not everyone is practicing this type of medicine well, with those types of results. I have another – because I'm watching my brother and I watch my father deal with this insulin. Uh, I think that basically they they don't treat uh, the procedure is like thirty units in the morning, ten at night. This is on my brother, and it, I don't see how it can work. I mean, it, it, I I do it through the day, and they make a pen today that's very easy to use, and and so you do it with each meal, and you're only doing what you need to do based on what you know you've eaten, and after a while you know by what you've eaten, you don't even have to test. But I t I'm still testing at every meal. And so what happens is is I have an even keel, and, I, and my brother goes way high and way low, and, and he's bouncing all over the place, and that's the way his doctor told him to do it. And, and so I said, well, go ask your doctor if you can't do it a little bit every day Something different than 30 units in a If I took 30 units in the morning, it'd be miserable. And let's explain insulin for a minute here. First, let's go back to, to uh, uh, Hollywood Joe for just a minute. And that is the first drug of choice for type 2 diabetic or adult-onset diabetics is a drug called sulfoureas. Di diabeta, Amaryl, Starlix, Glyburide. Glipizide, these are drugs that squeeze more insulin out of the pancreas that's working. And these are cheap, inexpensive drugs, and they do work, but they actually accelerate the rate of destruction of the pancreas. So when you're on these drugs, you're temporarily waiting until you're going to end up on insulin. So you have to understand that you're actually accelerating the destruction of your pancreas. So 
Obviously, less is better. When you get over here to, uh, to John's story that he needs insulin, there are three types of insulin. One, there's something called ultra-fast or regular insulin. This means that 45 minutes, it's gone. So you, you drink your sugar pop, you match it with taking regular insulin. The second type of insulin we call NPH. And this is back to the 70s when I was in finishing up medical school. And we're talking about 70, not 79 either. And this drug, NPH, would be around for about two or three hours. And then now we're talking about a drug called Lantus. And Lantus is once a day. Now, if you're taking 48 units of Lantus, that means you got two units on board every hour. So you have a baseline, but there's no response to the sugar load at a meal. And what the diabetologists are teaching now is absolute crap. Because you don't have a constant level of blood sugar every day, it goes up and down. And your body has to respond to the meals when they happen. So what John's brother is getting is getting Lantus. So he's got two or three units of insulin every hour of the day. So in the middle of the night, he's sleeping. He's got three hours Three, three units of insulin that hour, and he's eating a drink and, and a glass of water and pop and uh, a cake, and he has three units of insulin that hour. It's illogical. But this is the training because Atlantis insulin is the most expensive insulin. Now, we go to what makes sense, and I like to work on what's sense, sensible. This 70-30 insulin is a mixture of short-acting and medium-acting insulin. So what I use on all my patients is 70-30. You get a big hit of insulin when you take your meal, but you still have 30 units of insulin running around. 30% of it, insulin is longer acting because we talked about how diabetics have a slower sugar response. Mm. So 70-30 insulin is what I use with the meals. And yes, I do have some very brittle diabetics who I use some Lantus on, whether in the morning or night, but I don't do big loads of insulin because that's illogical. We treat physiologically what's there. And the fact that we have an insulin-dependent diabetic sitting next to me with a hemoglobin A1C under 6 means damn right this is the right way of doing it. Well, Joe had the best results, you said. Right, because he caught him early. Okay, so that's all about timing. Right. He had still had a pancreas that was working. It was working too hard trying to deal with all this extra fat and his insulin resistance. But by using the testosterone, he dropped his insulin resistance, his amount of insulin, his body produced dropped by 80%. He lost 60, 70 pounds of fat. He's exercising, which opens up the cell wall, so there's less insulin resistance. And like I said, his hemoglobin A1C as a diabetic is 5.2. But today, his blood test says he's not a diabetic. Now, John, with the genetic factors, a 20-year history of this pre-diabetic state, his heart disease, his stents, he has to use insulin. But when we time the insulin to the meals and we're using testosterone to lower the resistance, he's down at 5.9. I'm sure your brother is well over 8. I'm sure. And and what put me into balance was finally understanding uh, the difference between the reading and actually the dosage to take. The trick was to, to figure that out, and I'm sure it's different for every individual. So once I had a formula, that formula has worked for me now for all year. What he's talking about is what we call a sliding scale, and that is if you have a meal where you're having a piece of fish, you don't need as much insulin as if you're having a McDonald's uh, chocolate shake. 
So first of all, you try to set your meals so you have the same kind of foods, and then you see how you're going to monitor your insulin. So let's take uh, John for example. We pick a number based on experience, and this could be 6 to 10 units before the meal. So you walk in and say, what's your blood sugar? 160. Okay, take your 6 to 10 units, whatever we decide. Then you check your insulin two hours later. Excuse me, you check your blood sugar two hours later. You come back, well, my blood sugar is 160. Well, then you matched how much you ate by how much insulin you took. If two hours later his blood sugar is 250, he needed more insulin. If he comes back two hours later his blood sugar is 80, he took too much insulin. So we common sense teach the patients to adjust their insulin by a few units based on what they eat. And by frequent monitoring, I mean my patients, when I take on an acute diabetic, they'll call me three and four times a day and I'll monitor the insulin by a meal. Because if I give them the training with immediate feedback on four, five, six, ten days, they know that based on the food and what insulin they took and what their blood sugar was before and after the meal, how to adjust it. And I've had the most brittle diabetics. I have one that lives in Washington State, so, you know, that's only about 2,500 miles from here. Yeah. And he was seeing one of the heads of endocrinology, and his hemoglobin A1C was over 10. Well, now he's down in the low sixes. And he calls me. He called me. Now he doesn't call me anymore because he knows how to adjust his blood sugar. But to say, here's a formula, take it and see in three months, is stupid. And this is what doctors do. You have to be intense to get these people under control. And when you show them the attention that you really care, when you show them that, yes, you can call me, yes, you have a problem, call me 3 in the morning, they understand that their life has value. It has value to me, and I want that to have value to themselves. And that's the difference we can make. And this intense intervention in the first month makes all the difference. The point I want to make about the testosterone here is this is just not me blowing smoke. The American Diabetic Association came out with this three years ago. There was an article by the American Association of Diabetic Educators, Mm -hmm. and it was supported by a drug company making testosterone cream. But the point was they made a statement to all the diabetic educators that a testosterone level under 300 needs to be treated. And I called Richard who's president of the American Diabetic Association, he didn't even know that this came out from the diabetic educators. I said, this is what I talked to you about six years ago when we met in Miami. What can we do about this? Well, after that phone call, there was never a follow-up. The bottom line, even the local diabetic association here, I can't get them to do anything. I can't them say, this is what you're putting in the literature. And the point I wanted to make before is that Harvard came out with a study three years ago. It was published in an alternative medical journal called the New England Journal of Medicine, right? You've heard of that one? Yes. (laughs) And it showed that a study of all the papers and literature, E.L. Ding made the statement that every single diabetic is low in testosterone. came from Harvard three years ago. Have you seen any studies about treating diabetics with testosterone? No. Small study came out of England. Half the study, half the size of the study I did that was closed down, I told you, and it showed in England by giving 200 milligrams of 200 milligrams of testosterone every other week, and I use more than that, that they were able to lower hemoglobin A1C, cholesterol, uh, lose body fat, drop uh, uh, their blood sugars into control. And this was a study coming out of England using regular old-fashioned testosterone, and it's in the literature, and nobody gets it. And that what frustrates me every day. It's there. It's common sense now. It's logical. What we're actually showing is there is control of your diabetes, 
but it's endocrine and it's the other endocrine organs. So what's it going to take to right the ship? When are people going to realize that this is a worthy treatment, worth looking into, worth reporting on? Well, if Rush Limbaugh or uh, Bill O'Reilly are listening, I'll come do their show. <laughs> well, there you go, guys. Call Dr. Lichten. You know, let's let's get the word out. It's so ridiculous when you have solutions to problems and you don't address them. And the trouble is that you have to understand philosophy. We talked about this about doctors before. Mm-hmm. I mean, doctors go into medicine with the best intent. I mean, no one's going to become a billionaire becoming a doctor anymore if they ever did. But the point is the intent is good, but you're overwhelmed with so much information that they scare you into thinking that anything other than the established protocol is going to kill somebody. And that's why they're afraid. And it's taken me, with physicians I work with, I just saw one of the hematologists uh, that I've been working with for over 20 years. And we use the testosterone to keep this guy's blood count up who's bleeding from someplace we don't know. And I saw him, and he says, good thing I'm giving him iron. And I said, good thing I'm giving him testosterone. And he said, finally, after 20 years, I'll give you that. So it took me 20 years of examples after examples of people with anemia being able to reverse it with testosterone before he would give me that. And the endocrinologist says, I don't care. I will never in my life, no matter what they tell me, write for testosterone. And when a doctor tells me there that he won't do anything when it's something that works, is he doesn't belong, have the, he should not have the right to be a doctor. So, Joe, yes. any, any final comments from you uh, beyond that it's changed your life? You've already said that. It's, it's been a wonderful thing for you because you caught it early. Yes, and, oh, man, it's just, the more I, the longer I live, the better I get. I mean, I my diet is, like, perfect now. I exercise three times a week uh, with a personal trainer and do five days of cardio. I mean, it's just, before I never thought I'd have that chance, <laughs> really. So, I mean, I don't know, it's just, uh, I would say to anybody, you know, don't give up. You know, find somebody who really knows what they're doing. And, I'm sure and, the, and the other thing you're going to say is the testosterone that we were using back 10 years ago, what were your comment about my new combination of testosterone? <laughs> Amazing. I don't know. Uh, it's, what was the line you said? Who's supposed to come back? Oh, my wife. Okay, fine. Now <laughs> we got my wife. It. All right, so he's diabetic for 20 years, and he's telling us that the wife has to come in to keep up with him. All right? We got the message? <laughs> Oh, I got the message. Okay, I want to make sure. Well, guys, thanks a lot for coming. I appreciate it. In closing, I guess the message here is get the word out early to people so that they don't get to where you are, John. I mean, you're being helped now, but wouldn't you think that's the right path? Absolutely. I mean, if I'd have known Dr. Lichten a decade earlier, I think I'd have been in a better position. Well, at least you know him now. You still have your plane. Yeah, and... And it's never too late, just like you started the story with. If you exercise and if you get your hormone levels up, we can do a lot with this fountain of youth drug to turn back disease for our men and women patients. So, ladies and gentlemen, if this is a problem for you or you think it is and maybe you haven't had the response that you're looking for from your doctor, maybe it's time that you I'll take another opinion in. And you may want to call Dr. Licton for a consultation. You can reach him at 248-593-9999. Again, that's 248-593-9999. Or visit his website, which is usdoctor.com. 
And if you'd like to ask a question for next week's program, send it to usdoctorradio at gmail.com. Again, that's usdoctorradio at gmail.com. We'd be happy to answer your questions. Next week, a special guest, Dr. Jim Roberts. Jim is a cardiologist, and he's got all kinds of interesting information about testosterone as well. I mean, that subject keeps coming up, whether it's for diabetes or cardiovascular. But Dr. Roberts will be here. He's written a book with Dr. Sinatra, another world-famous cardiologist, and that will be a great show. All our new programs are on iTunes every Monday. Tell your friends. We appreciate you listening. Dr. Lichten, as always, a pleasure being with you today. Uh, It's a treat to be here. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Steve Peck. We'll talk to you again next week.